0: And welcome to another class on uh, what is right now a beautiful Sunday uh, and I hope all of you are being able to enjoy a, a nice fall day uh, wherever you are. Um, as we get started today, uh, again, we always appreciate everybody checking in and letting us know where you're coming from and that's awesome. Uh, it is fun to watch watch all of that and then to see the interactions uh, that you might have uh, one with another. Now. As I was looking at this and, you, you know, like many of you, I've tried to, you know, you, you look at the news and the news isn't really that awesome these days. And so I seem to maintain a sunnier disposition the less I read the news. Because every time I open the news, it seems like there's something else that I really didn't want to know or, you know, all of the contention and stuff going on. So... um and as it, so, for a lot of people, 2020 has turned out to kind of be a bummer year. Uh, somebody was joking the other day that um, it might be that somewhere in the future we go well. At least it's not 2020, um, or that was a that was a proper 2020 move. Uh, we're just gonna. It might be a benchmark for yuck in the future, and that, that makes it kind of hard. Now, so I was looking at that. I ran across something today that I thought. Uh, it's kind of peripherally related to what we're talking about, but I thought it would be kind of a, a good start uh, and that is there are very very few people these days that haven't probably seen at least one of the Lord of the Ring movies and there's a and and a lot of people have also read uh, the books certainly is when our kids were little we ran them through the Lord of the Ring kind of thing and I, our kids have also done that with their kids and and there's a line in uh in one of the books that i just thought really kind of made some sense and connected for me in terms of what we're looking at in this uh t- tumultuous year of 2020 and i thought i would just kind of share this passage uh to uh, as we get started today and and it's this this is uh Sam uh, speaking to Frodo and he says it's like the great stories Mr. Frodo the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't know uh, you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy how could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened Um, sound familiar so far But in the end, Sam says, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. Now, we have to remember that at the same time that uh, Tolkien is writing this, he has in his experience World War I and being in the trenches in World War I. And so when he talks about darkness and shadows and bad days, J.R. Tolkien was very, very acquainted with those kind of experiences. And I think he's drawing on this uh, as he's writing. Then he says, "'But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. There is good in this world and it's worth fighting for. There is good in this world and it's worth fighting for no matter how dark it may certainly seem, uh, as, as we go along. And, and again, I think there are those times we look in the, at the news and, and try and get more information about what's going on around us, and it's all bad stuff. And, and there is good in the world. And I think each one of us, as we kind of live our lives and try to be that good, I think we represent a light. Uh, in opposition to some of the darkness and things uh, that are out there and hopefully some of the things that we've been talking about in this class represent a light in our own life that keep us going uh, because like he like said um, the the difference is is a lot of people had chances of going back but they kept going because they were holding on to something and hopefully, that's something we're holding on to uh, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to us, and and this is what keeps us going. Now, as we as we move into uh, the the our experience in Genesis, we're finding that uh, one of the things that makes uh, Genesis and more difficult, for instance, is the the uh, information we don't have, and the amount of interpretations that have been laid on over two millennia of this book, and trying to understand what it means to us. Genesis is a, an origin story. It's a creation story. It's, the, it's our, one of our foundational stories of how we see us and how we see the world and how we see God. And when we get these foundational stories, uh, we look back at those for understanding. Uh, I think that's why there's been a tendency in the church to say, who is the church? And we go back to our foundational stories of Joseph Smith and gold plates and Angel Moroni's, looking for who are we based on where we came from. And and uh, Genesis is the origin story of origin stories. But again, how we understand it is kind of critical. Years ago, uh, when I was teaching Old Testament in institute class, I I had a, a little lady come up to me afterwards after the class and she said after, after going to the temple there's something that I don't understand and she says I think I can talk about it here and I said what's your question And and she said I'm still not sure why Adam and Eve needed money and she says it's bothered me for a lot of years as to why Adam and Eve would need money. That doesn't make any sense. And I said, "Uh, Sister, uh, do you remember that part of what you've heard is that what we hear in the temple is figurative, uh, symbolic. And that really, we're Adam and Eve. We need money. They didn't. We need money. It's about us. Each one of us are Adam and Eve. And she said, oh, so they didn't need money in the Garden of Eden. No, they really really didn't. Um, But she was having a hard time squaring historically what did happen there with what she had been taught uh, in learning about ordinances and covenants. Uh, in a uh, in a temple setting and and I think that's kind of endemic of, of what happens with us as we're trying to make sense of these stories um, I, I, I heard something from a, a man uh, the, uh, just this week and he said reading the Bible taught me to be an atheist in other words, the stuff I read in the Bible really messed with me because it didn't square with what I knew or believed. Uh, it messed with how I saw God. Um, and and so it was the Bible that led me to be an atheist. And I thought, well, that's that's unfortunate because you missed uh, the real lessons that that coming out of there. And, and so when we take a look at trying to understand Adam and Eve in this very beginning in that garden, uh, in traditional Christianity and they're trying to make sense of it what they really have is the Bible in however that's translated and over two millennia all the people that would try to explain it or justify it or make sense of it or interpret it. And part of what we have found and part of what scholars certainly find is that how you interpret the Bible has a lot to do with when you interpreted the Bible. And how you understand Adam and Eve has a lot to do with when you interpreted Adam and Eve. So Paul, in in 45 AD, as we'll talk about in a second, Paul interpreted the Adam and Eve and garden experience one way. Augustine, in the 4th century, interpreted another based on his world and his experience Luther and and the reformers saw it in a different light based on the world in which they live and they added their particular interpretation uh, to this and certainly modernism now people are interpreting Adam and Eve and the creation story based on their lived experience and how they now see the world now from a Latter-day Saint perspective um, uh, restored Christianity Uh, certainly we have uh, the Bible to tell us what happened there but isn't it interesting that we also have the Book of Mormon and certainly uh, Lehi for instance in 2 Nephi has an understanding of where he was and his reading to that point about what happened to Adam and Eve and what they did and why they did it, okay? And we have an interpretation of what Lehi interpreted happened to Adam and Eve. So we get to interpret it through the eyes of Book of Mormon prophets and and their own understanding, however limited that might have been at certain points. Now, we also have the temple presentation. It's no secret uh, in the church's materials that uh, attending the temple has a creation story as part of the education and knowledge and understanding and covenant making that happened in the temple. And that gives us a symbolic understanding of events that happened as part of the creation and happened uh, with Adam and Eve uh, from a symbolic uh, standpoint. At the same time, we also have books like Moses and Abraham that give us additional light and knowledge about what they did and why they did it and sometimes that squares with the Bible and sometimes that doesn't. And so we have another light being shown on this creation story. Now, in addition to that, uh, in restored uh, Christianity, we have the Joseph Smith translation. He had the ability to go back, uh, sometimes as part of Moses and Abraham, but sometimes just altering and getting revelation and understanding about those very early days of mankind and what happened during those moments. And so we have the Joseph Smith translation. In addition to that, we also have a revelation that is available to prophets as they, as they teach, as they try and understand and interpret uh, the scriptures as well. We have this whole body of uh, restored Christianity, knowledge and understanding and light still trying to make sense of something. And you know what's fascinating about all of this? Doesn't matter whether it's traditional Christianity or restored Christianity. In the middle of all of that, the more you read, the more certainly I have read even this week, the more questions we have, and the, least a- and the fewer answers we actually have even with all of this additional light and knowledge. Uh, It's as if, as one scholar put it, a non-LDS scholar said, it's almost as if God didn't intend us to completely understand what happened. That to a certain extent, uh, the Adam and Eve drama would be forever... uh, something unsolved where God is saying to us almost like he did to Job um, my ways are not your ways and you're not going to necessarily understand my ways and some things might remain a mystery until we get those millennial firesides (laughs) where Adam comes and speaks at at our millennial fireside and says well this is what really happened or here's what I really knew uh, and and we're going to have those, those opportunities, I think, to hear from those people. And so in the millennium maybe we'll know this stuff. But at the moment, the more you study the more questions that you have. And brothers and sisters, I believe the more questions you should have. I really do. You should have more questions. Because as you dig and try and understand, some of this may not make as much sense as maybe sometimes when we get caught in those gospel doctrine uh, trite quick answers that we come up with before we move on because we only had 40 minutes to study all the book of Isaiah and we're hurrying to get through so we come up with really quick answers so that we know what to do and then we, ne- we w- move on to the next one and, you know, and so we have these plug in this tried and true answer for us and move on and what a disservice it does to the deeper knowledge and understanding that the Lord says dig dig understand the glory of God is intelligence (laughs) dig through this stuff to find and ask questions please ask questions every revelation in the doctrine and covenants came because Joseph Smith had a question and a revelation came to give him an answer ask questions of the text and ask questions here so with all of this revealed in light and knowledge There are additional questions that we don't have answers to. So let's take um, just a couple of these and see if we can locate some of the unsolved questions that, uh, that certainly come up. For instance, why a garden in the first place? The idea and and what what was settled in the council in heaven was that mortality would go down to earth and begin their mortal experience. So in essence, why a garden, almost like a waiting room experience before the real act begins? Was this like an MTC before the actual mission? Uh, Why a garden experience uh, to begin with? And if that's the case then why frame it why place into that garden to ma- and making them caretakers of the garden and then give them two trees two unguarded trees and a wily serpent bent on messing with that and then make one of the trees forbidden. Why, give a, why make the, the forbidden fruit, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and make that the pathway through which mortality enters the world, and then give a commandment not to partake of that fruit? Why do that? What purpose did that serve? Which raises, the, which raises the question, could they have done it without that? Why give them a commandment that they needed to break in order to keep another commandment? Kind of the devil's dilemma, so to speak. Okay? Uh, and, and give them commandments like multiply and replenish the earth, and the question is, Could they multiply and replenish the earth and still be in the garden? Or is that something that had to only happen in mortality? Uh, Lehi believed that they would need to fall first before they could. Eve kind of suggests that. But why, why a forbidden fruit? Why not just place them in the world and have the thing get started? But set it up so that they had to disobey God in order to obey God. We get that, end, that endless uh, question that, that comes with that. Now, so, so that, that raises another question then. Um, was there no other way other than having a forbidden fruit and the breaking of a commandment to keep a commandment? Was there no other way? Well, who told them that there was no other way? It wasn't God it was the wily serpent it was the father of all lies who says there is no other way here well that's interesting here's the problem that that you have and you understand this with with, uh, someone who lies or has been less than truthful with you part of what makes dealing with somebody who has a truth problem is the fact that you don't know when they're lying and when they're telling the truth so, think about Lucifer in the garden. When he says, you've got to take the fruit. There's no other way. Is that one of those moments when Lucifer is telling the truth? One of the, one of the truths, and then he throws in a lie? Is he telling the truth? Or is there, there an absolute lie? That there was another way. We don't know. For instance, when Abraham is on Mount Moriah and, and the angel is going to say to him, you have to sacrifice your son Isaac. Could the angel have said to him, there's no other way here. This has to be done. And then it turned out that there was another way there was a ram in the thicket that would then take care of that sacrifice hard to know was there another way for them to enter mortality except by breaking one of, uh, a commandment of God of, of a, to eat of a forbidden fruit would there have been another way presented or provided we, we just really really don't know Now on on top of that another question Um, how much did Eve know? What was Eve's knowledge? Now this becomes not just head knowledge or a theological question what did Eve know and what did she do laid the foundation for millennia of church policies based on their understanding of what Eve knew and what she didn't know. So, so for instance, if we go back, uh, we've kind of swung both ways here over time. The original idea was that Eve um, was had uh, a hubris, and that is she just wanted to be like God. She had a prideful aspect. So Eve was going to uh, partake of the fruit deliberately so that she could be smart so that she could be like God and she didn't care whether she broke the, the commandment or what was going to happen uh, as, and, as, and then she pulls Adam into her scheme and because of that mankind fell and they screwed up the whole works. And because of that man fell and we didn't get to live in paradise because Adam and Eve and Eve Blew it for us, and and created original sin, and now we had to live in a world with pain and hurt because Adam and Eve couldn't get it right in the first place. As another person has written, sure, if you're going to take that road, sure seems like God was a really good repairman and a pretty horrible plan designer because <laughs> he couldn't put a plan together. Uh, that, that his first two people couldn't even keep going very long. But based on this idea of original sin, now church policies had to include things like infant baptism to try and cleanse original sin. And there was a belief of the depravity, utter depravity of man, especially among the reformers, that because of Adam's sin and fall and he plunged us into horrible chaos and a mortal horrible world that man is depraved and only God could impugn his righteousness and kind of pull us out of it even though we didn't deserve it because we were depraved because Adam was depraved because of their hubris to want to be like God. So this whole idea of Eve's original sin and she really was the bad guy in this whole drama And so women kind of deserve pain and childbearing and all of that based on being uh, children of Eve. Now, for a lot of modern sensibilities, that's pretty offensive. That we love Mother Eve and having her cast in that kind of (coughs) um, um, destructive, mean-spirited, Attack uh, has led almost a swing to the other side, and that—that's what another author has talked about. As we would like to see it more as Eve's wise choice. Eve knew exactly what she was doing. She knew the pain of what taking that step. Uh, she understood completely what all would be involved here. She weighed her options and made—and was not deceived. She really just made, in the process of all of that, a very courageous choice. Now, as, as much as that kind of, uh, th- there's some aspects of that that, that, that uh, really appeal to us, especially with modern sensibilities, and our, and our love and understanding of what a fortunate fall her actions spurred on. Unfortunately, there's some steps in between there that uh, leave leave some question marks about just how much did she know. First of all, as we're going to talk about in a second, she saw that she was deceived. She responds to the shame and Adam responds to the feeling shame and they're feeling a shame that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be coming to somebody who feel like that they had made an informed, wise choice, a noble choice, even if if it meant sacrifice for them. You get a sense from them in their own words that they somehow knew that they had been deceived and that uh, they didn't have really all of the knowledge and that they had really been beguiled. Uh, by Lucifer okay So um, at the end of this um, I have th- 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 so this is this is Kevin's uh, theory uh, looking back on um, so trying to answer why it is that those happen my own my own theory on this is, is simply this that uh, we have the brother of Jared who, uh, uh, as he is having the Lord touch the stones in the book of Ether 2, um, and the Lord is going to light those those stones so they'll have light in the barges. And remember, he sees the finger, and and he's surprised that there's a finger, and the Lord says, do you want to see uh, the rest of me? And he says, yes. And, and the Lord then shows his entire body to, uh, to to uh, the brother of Jared. And then he says repeatedly, and Moroni says repeatedly, that because of his faith, he couldn't be kept outside the veil from seeing God. As we're going to talk about here in just a second, uh, spiritual death is a separation from God. And we're going to talk about how one of the things that, that partaking of a forbidden fruit enabled Adam and Eve to step outside of the veil, outside the presence of God because if they'd kept the commandments God couldn't have kept them outside the veil and they needed to be outside the veil and they needed to be in mortality for the plan uh, to roll forward. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about how this works then. In Moses 5, here's what we know for sure. We may not have, we may have a lot of unanswered questions, but here's what we know for sure and we have two testimonies from two witnesses that were there, Adam and Eve. And here's what they will say about what they knew and what their experience was and what they learned from all of that. And in, in Moses 5, We get Adam's statement. And it says that in that day that uh, the angel taught him what it is that he was doing with the sacrifice, in that day Adam blessed God and was filled, probably filled with some peace and filled with hope, and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, What did he tell them? Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, My eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy. And then he's going to say, and again in the flesh I shall see God. Now, there's two pieces of information in there that I think are important that tell us about what happened with Adam and Eve. (coughs) Number one, Adam is saying, because of my transgression, my eyes are open, I'll have joy. Because of my sin, I will have joy. Adam is rejoicing and feeling grateful for the knowledge he gained from a painful situation with his transgression. That in a way, he could almost say, my transgression was a blessing my transgression brought me things that I wouldn't have had had I been stayed obedient wow we don't tend to see our sins and transgressions as blessings just as a hindrance and he's saying hey because of my transgression I'll have joy it's another way of saying I needed my transgression to have joy because I got things that I wouldn't have gotten knowledge and understanding I wouldn't have had in any other way Here's the other thing, and it's a, it's, it's a little more subtle. And he says, and again in the flesh I shall see God. As, as a therapist, I look at something like this and, and I would frame this one as um, separation anxiety. When, think about as as kids are growing and they tend to go through this stage, do they not, Where Uh, they begin to have some separation anxiety with their mom. You know, a baby, a toddler may start to cry when mom is out of their sight because they don't yet have what we call object permanence. When objects go away, they're never coming back. They're gone. And they haven't yet learned object permanence. I think all of us have kind of separation anxiety. And what Adam is telling you is that in a sense, I believe what he's saying is when I had to leave the presence of God I had, I experienced as he should have separation anxiety. I loved being in the presence of somebody who loved me. I loved feeling what I felt in the presence of my heavenly parents. And the greatest pain that I experienced from leaving the garden wasn't about thorns and it wasn't about tilling. It was being out of the presence out of that divine presence that filled me with love and reassurance and that was painful. That would have been the most painful aspect I believe. There is their greatest sorrow. The the fall for everything that they would have learned and having kids and having experiences of mortality what he yearned for was to be back in the flesh and see God again and experience what he had experienced Joseph Smith after the first vision in one of his uh, writings says afterwards I was filled with the love of God and of all men days. It had that kind of profound effect to be in that kind of loving presence. Eve's going to tell you basically the same thing. So here's testimony number two. And Eve, his wife, heard these things and was glad. And here was her testimony. Were it not for our transgression, that doesn't sound like a noble choice. That sounds like we, we sinned, we were beguiled, we sinned. But were it not for our transgression, we never would have had seed, Again, she believed she wouldn't have had kids without being mortal. And never would have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption. I am grateful, she is saying, in a way that might be a little hard for us to understand. I'm grateful for our transgression because of all the things that have come from it since and uh, and the eternal life which God giveth to the obedient. Let, let me say what she's not saying. Through my transgressions, I came to know the redemption, the atonement of the Savior in a way that I wouldn't have known it before. Adam is saying the same thing. Um, that this joy and, and, and that redemption is coming from Jesus and their understanding. Now, that's part of what they're saying, that redemption, however painful, and we're not supposed to do it, and then we're mortal, and we do, and we fall. What, and what we do is we fall out of his presence. So, as, as we're looking at, here's, one, here's some of the lessons that I think come out of this, and I think it's really important that we get this. Okay? Now, so here's reminders that laws commandments are, are given not to help us earn heaven, so we get brownie points and a way of checking where I were doing, are to Not are not given to help us earn heaven, but to transform us into beings capable of living heavenly lives. That is the, the purpose of commandments and laws are to teach us how to love, and as we learn how to love, we become like him, and we then are comfortable to live back in his presence transgressions separate us they cause a, a, our own minor fall when we transgress and by returning to obedience from turning around we walk back into the presence of god so transgressions separate us from god that's the great pain now, we get caught up sometimes when we're in discussions about repentance. Um, and we get caught up that during these times of separation, we guilt and shame. I went back and, and looked again. I don't find any evidence of God guilting and shaming. That's not, that's the other guy. The other guy does the guilting and shaming. What you're hearing from Adam and Eve as they resolve and heal from their transgression, what you heard from them was two things. Rather than guilting and shaming, we need to find peace through learning and yearning. Guilting and shaming cause further separation. Learning and yearning draws closer to him and teach us the lessons that our transgressions are supposed to teach us. And yet sometimes we get so caught up in the idea of guilt and shame, and that's the only way that we'll remember that so we never do that stuff again. And if we raise the guilt and pain factor, that we'll, we'll be more obedient next time, and then we do it again because we seem to forget. Uh, because it turns out that guilting and shaming aren't really effective ways of keeping somebody from repeating a sin. They maybe get better at hiding it or avoiding it or finding other ways to, other forbidden fruit to take. But my experience, especially in working with people that struggle with addictions, is that guilting and shaming have the opposite effect on somebody that is trying to change and Repent, meaning change their life and transform. Adam and Eve says it's through learning, now I know what my transgression did, and yearning that draw to be back into his presence. Now, sometimes as part of this process, we talk about godly sorrow, that we're supposed to have godly sorrow. And sometimes that gets acquainted to guilt. We're, we're, we're feeling guilty about our sins. Now this comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 7. And, and think about what's being said here. Godly sorrow. What is that? That's God's sorrow for transgressions. We need to sorrow... As God does. And Paul is going to put it in the context in talking to the Corinthian saints. He's going to say, Now I rejoice, not that you are sad, but that you were sad, which led to repentance. He's saying it's not guilt that leads you to repentance, it's sadness. Godly sadness of being removed from his presence and feeling a distance, falling out of the garden and then feeling sad. For godly sorrow, sadness results in repentance, which leads to salvation and produces no. Regret. Paul will tell you that the idea is that we grieve that loss of the light, we grieve that divine presence, and that grieving that and having that sadness is going to cause us to do the second part of repentance. If, first of all, we're going to experience sadness and grief. At our transgressions, the thing that turns us around and walks us back into His presence is the yearning, President Uchtdorf. Deep within us, from a conference. Deep within us is a longing to somehow reach past the veil and embrace heavenly parents we once knew and cherished. And while some might suppress this yearning, those who do not quench this light within themselves can embark on an incredible journey, a wondrous migration towards heavenly climes, and with that mutual approbation let me come and dwell with you. That creates change. That creates a situation where we are more likely to obey because we love to obey. Because we love the fruits of obedience. We love the feeling that we get when we're closer to our heavenly parents as opposed to the, the loneliness and darkness and separation that comes when we have been separated out it's in that moment that Satan tries to introduce guilt and shame as a wedge to keep us in that place because guilt and shame will cause us to freeze as opposed to learn and yearn back into into God's presence. Brothers and sisters, the lessons of Eden are bound up in our ability to transgress as mortals to feel that divine distance And then begin to learn more about Him. And then yearn to be with Him. And it's that yearning that pulls us off the couch. That pulls us towards Him. That draws us to want to find more light and knowledge in His presence. I bear you my testimony that the Lord wants us to yearn towards Him. That He loves us. And that each of us as Adam and Eve can come back into His presence and with Him enjoy the eternal life that He has prepared for us. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.